Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. I think we can all agree that this last year has been truly wicked for us. Individuals have been lost, communities have been in despair, families have been isolated from each other, and at times there seems to be no end in sight. It is precisely at these times that we need enlightened, compassionate leadership to lift us up. Yeah, absolutely, Senator. Excellent and capable leadership plays a pivotal role in driving success in our lives and also success with any organization, business or institutions. Leaders can be dynamic, exciting and inspiring to others, pushing people to take action. Leadership transforms a mere possibility into a reality. And during these tough, tough times, it's so crucial that we have good and effective leaders. Well said, Paul, and we have exactly one such incredibly uh, strategic and yet compassionate leaders on our show today. I can't think of a better person to help us understand leadership in difficult times than my colleague, Senator Chantal Pericler. Let's get to the interview. Hello everyone and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. There, have, there has rarely been a more wicked time than these times. The pandemic, uh, the, the fight for racial justice, climate change, gender inequity, the search for reconciliation and truth with the indigenous peoples, just to name a few. And it is precisely in times like this that we need leadership voices to lift us up. Our guest on the podcast today Senator Chantal Pericler is precisely such a leadership voice. She has been an exemplary role model and leader throughout her career. Senator Pericler is an internationally renowned athlete who has won gold medals in the Paralympic Games, Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games and was appointed as Team Canada's chef de mission for the Rio Paralympic Games. Senator Pericler was awarded the Lou Marsh Memorial Trophy for Canadian Athlete of the Year and was inducted into the Canadian Paralympic Hall of Fame. A tireless advocate for the contributions of people with disabilities, Senator Pericler has played an important role in building a more inclusive Canada. And she is, of course, my good friend and colleague in the Senate. Thank you, Senator, for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank so, you for having me. <laughs> we are delighted to have you. So I want to reflect on the immediate past as we start. You have just come through a very stressful leadership experience, as I have observed, uh, as sponsor of C7, which is the extension of the assisted dying regime. Uh, can you share with us the high and low points of this experience and perhaps coming from that leadership lessons that you can share with us? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, my experience as sponsor uh, of Bill C7, uh, the medical assistance in dying, expanding medical assistance in dying to Canadians who are not uh, near that has been, uh, it's been a very interesting uh, experience from my perspective as a, as a senator, as an individual, because not only was it a challenge to begin with, because uh, medical assistance in dying will never be an easy conversation, uh, and, and it shouldn't be. So, so to begin with, it, it had to be a big challenge for me as a person and as a senator and as a leader. But then 
this um, sponsorship of Bill C-7 uh, lasted longer than, than I thought it would last. And then it happened in a situation of a pandemic, which no one expected. And then from a personal uh, perspective, it also happened in a homeschooling experience because I am the mother of a seven-year-old. So, so when you put everything together, um, it's been something I had never gone through before. Well, like mainly Canadian anyway, but uh, as a leader, it really challenged me in uh, organizational uh, perspective, in a leadership perspective also, because uh, when you think about leadership, uh, you think about uh, relationship, discussion, talking with people. And now all of a sudden, we all ended up in this virtual world where nobody uh, expected that. And not everybody had the same type of experience, expertise, um, and, and it just became a, a, a completely different sponsorship experience in my part. I would say, um, I would say that the high part was that uh, it really, it really showed how the Senate uh, and the senators, individuals, uh, were able to um, to jump in in making it happen, you know, virtually with being more flexible, with, with being available. Uh, and, and of course, the, the, the other part of that is that everybody had to go through um, working with Bill C-7 in, in very different situation, whether as individual, you could see, and, and everybody's been talking about this pandemic um, tiredness or and and some individuals are a little bit more edgy a little bit more tired uh, everybody has to deal with different home situations whether uh, the senators themselves or or their office and the staff so so there was a lot of uh, intangible but very real aspect to it and 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 it was not an easy bill uh, to begin with so um I, I think uh, what I'm taking from this is that uh, when when you are a leader, um, you need to you need to be. Uh, I'm going to be very simple here, but there is the uh, you know the uh, the content. So the content of the bill, but also what I would call the container. <laughs> and in this case, they both were very challenging. And so we had to deal with making sure that the very, very serious and important issues were discussed, debated, taken into consideration. But what I call the container, uh, the Zoom, the Zoom challenges, the different individuals dealing with their different situations, we, I had to take that into consideration. And uh, I have to say that I'm quite, uh, uh, I, I am very impressed of, of the work that was done in the Senate in this bill, even if it was not easy. Uh, I When I look back and I take a step back and I analyze the committee, the debate, the questions, uh, it was tough. It was uh, never uh, complacent, but always respectful and productive. So as I watched you in particular through the passage, the journey that of extension of assisted uh, dying, I noticed two qualities about you. One, your resilience. You stay with it, you don't give up. And two, your compassion. 
And your personal leadership story, I think, plays a lot into this. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a single event that propels you into a leadership position or into uncharted territory. Can you share such a moment with us? Um, I think uh, that is a very interesting question and, and one of the very simple answer, uh, for sure it has to be uh, the challenge of my accident. And even if I was very young uh, and I don't, you know, I don't even know exactly how to articulate it, but for sure it has to, it, it changed my life because all of a sudden and uh, uh, I, I became paraplegic. You know, I was on the farm. I had this barn door fell on me and you wake up and your life, even if you're only 13, your life is completely different. You have not prepared for it. You have not wanted it. It's out of your control, uh, but it's there and it's there to stay and you know it's there to stay. So I think this really formed uh, who I was going to become uh, as a, a person, but but also later on as an athlete and and maybe as as a leader. Although I think we we all are leaders at some level, but uh, but I think it did have a very very strong impact because it forced me uh, to that journey of of uh, resilience, but also of living with a difference uh, and a, a difference that everybody sees and that you don't choose. Uh, but it's there and you have to face it day to day to day. So, so I think this played a big role. Um, and then if I can continue on that, I think as a high performance athlete, I had some of those wake up call moments. Uh, one of them I remember being in 2002 in Paris, having the worst race of my life, 800 meter finishing last, being very destroyed and because I wanted to win and, and I, you know, my sponsor was there for many reasons. And I remember having this, uh, you know, life uh, important conversation with my coach who said to me, uh, because I was finding excuses, and he said to me at one point, he said, well, can we all agree that you just choked under pressure? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say my coach is a himself a Swedish high performance uh, speed skater and sometimes they're not the best with uh, uh, human <laughs> skills uh, <laughs> in terms so that that was his very but you know and then he said he said this happened do you want to get there and if so we are going to need to change learn and grow and change is hard but uh, but I think it is possible when you make that decision and this very simple experience really set me on a road to to being able to uh, always being very honest with myself and say to myself, yes, I choked. Yes, this was a bad move uh, and then try to grow and learn from it. So to me, this was a two very important moment. And, and, and during those difficult times, I mean, during your accident, but also you, you just mentioned uh, your coach sort of uh, I don't know, uh, you know, sort of laying it on the line for you. What what have you over the years in those experiences um, have looked to others for inspiration and strength, and strength? Has there been other examples of individuals that have helped you and and pushed you and 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 guided you and inspired you to the heights that you achieved? Uh, there are too many 
there are too many to to fill this. Uh, I, I could fill the next two hours with who inspired me. I mean, I think there are the classics, the heroes. I, I Ever since I was young, but even now, I, I see myself as a sponge when it comes to role model. I grab everything I see that inspires me. I'm not shy of it. I'm not, you know, and and uh, there is, a, for me, one of the famous role model, two of them. One is Simone de Beauvoir, famous feminist, uh, French feminist, you know, the third, uh, le troisième sexe and all of that. She inspired me at so many, I've read every single thing, the journals, the war journals, the books, the everything. And then is Emil Zatopek is a, a, a great athlete also uh, from uh, from Prague. And, and but then there's so many others. And, and Senator Omidvar, you know that uh, I, I never hesitate. Uh, I, one time I, I, I take the phone, I need an advice. Uh, can you help me with that? How would you deal with that? How I've done it with C7. I've done it in the Senate as an athlete. And it's amazing how people uh, will be willing to help you. And I never feel, you know, like... Um, like it's a weakness. If I have something that I see you and you have this strength and I want it, I will take my phone and call you and ask you about it with no shame, with no, uh, you know, like, and I think people should do more of that because we do have the more formal, you know, mentorship program and, and th those are very, very good. But I always tell even the younger women, like you would be surprised how many people will just say, yes, I'll go for coffee with you, even if they don't know you because um, because I gained something from it. So I've had a lot of people inspiring me and, and the Senate is a good example because when I got there, uh, as a former athlete, as a person with disability, um, I never hesitate. And in fact, I had many of those coffees and lunches just because I wanted to soak up uh, experience and, and, and knowledge. And, and has that sort of helped you? I mean, you, you know, thinking about the Paralympics, thinking about sport, um, there's a lot of challenges there. there. There's hierarchy, there's politics, there's money. Um, so were those sort of experiences and reaching out to people, did that help you kind of stand up for your values in a very tough and and difficult sort of ecosystem that sport and and the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games are. Uh, sport, um, you learn a lot from sport, and then in general, and then you learn a, a lot from high performance sport because you know once you've been in a stadium with ninety one thousand people and you've got sixteen seconds to show what you want to do and you want it, you know you want that medal. You've been thinking about it every single day for 20 years and and so so the pressure uh that you need to learn to live with and cope with and uh, uh i um you know uh i remember very 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 uh precisely being on the start of a hundred meter and your heartbeat is so loud that you hear it <laughs> and, and it's fast. And, and so that, that type of uh, pressure and, and adrenaline, I think, I think you take it with you after. And, and so many other things, you know, goal setting, um, 
having this clear idea of where you want to go and how you're going to deconstruct that plan to make it happen is something that I bring to my work in the Senate in, in saying, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. How are we going to make and how can we quantify quantify that? And so uh, those are the things that I bring uh, with me and being able to, I guess, face adversity. And, and we were talking about Bill C-7 and it was not easy all the way. And, and I had to stay firm on, on my belief. And, and I think it has to start with with believing in what you're doing, uh, that's always been important to me. Sometimes people ask me uh, as an athlete, you know, what are you the most proud of? And 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 of course, they, they think you're going to talk about the medals, but I always try to go back to say that for me, and even to this day, the measure of my success is being able to, to do what I want to do while staying who I want to stay, you know, while being, while being who I want to be with my own values. And when you can achieve both, um, to me, this is still the measure of my success. So Senator, you talked about, you know, your past as a high performance mm -hmm. athlete and an elite sport. And I want to try and map that experience to the experience both you and I have as senators. In a, in a sense, our work in the Senate is high performance as well, and we're driven by results. We all, politics is about winning as a sports. Um, so can you uh, share with us how your lessons in sport can be translated into your work in the Senate or into our work in the Senate? When I first, uh, like many others, I suppose, when I first arrived in the Senate, uh, I was very puzzled on how I would be able to, with what I had, and it's not, it was not lack of confidence because I knew I had something to bring uh, from my experience as a former athlete, as a, you know, sport and wellness advocate, as a person with disability, but, but I was very puzzled on how am I going to take that and, and give it, you know, meaning and purpose in the Senate. But then looking back, and it's been a few years now, I think that there's a lot of things that you learn as an athlete, and those are sometimes basic but they are important you know uh facing adversity being able to choose exactly what you want to do and then uh draw a map on how to make it happen uh and i'm not saying sport is the only way to learn that but uh but also making sure that um, you have a good team that's going to take you to where you want to go um, I think this is all a, a few things that I've learned through sport. Um, and then, of course, coping with stress because there is a lot of um, stress, adrenaline, pressure in the Senate because, because we want to do something. We want to make it happen. And it's not easy. There is a lot of uh, opposition. There's a lot of uh, uh, different, you know, debates and games being played sometimes. And, and you know what you want to, to do, but, but, 
but this is all happening. And so being able to take a step back, take a deep breath, uh, deal with that pressure, deal with that stress, I think this, um, this is very helpful. Um, and I think also athletes know that um, you need to put the time and you need to, to do the work. And, uh, and this is something that I'm still doing in the Senate because I know that you know, the learning curve for us arrived for me and, and you know, uh, a lot of the new senators arriving in the Senate as non-politician and non-legislators, that learning curve was the steepest that I've ever had to face. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think a lot of us also, one of the big challenges that we had is we came from an environment where we were the best at what we were doing, and that's nice, right? And then you get in the Senate, and it's like, no, you're not, you're not the best at this. <laughs> Just like deal with it <laughs> and and learn. And it is a very humbling moment, uh, and it needs to, you know, you need to be strong to stay, to think, and to realize that yes, I have something to bring, but I need to learn uh, this journey and this content as a senator to bring to be able to bring the rest um, and and I think I'm slowly getting there but uh, I'm also realistic that uh, you know the senator that I am now um, is not the one that I will be in 10 years and uh, and that's fine you know and uh, uh, I think uh, one of the lesson is that you know you 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 have to be the best that you can be today uh, and sometimes that's that's uh, that's that's okay, you know. I can certainly share with that uh, uh, sense of or that experience of of humility that you we quickly gained in the Senate, where we were not uh, uh, the best of the best, but we were uh, a member of a of a Senate, and both you and I have, you and I have had a steep learning curve. But I'm going to not going to let you off with humility at this point. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you to share with us and getting back to sports and your advocacy for the disability for the disability community in particular disabled athletes i want to share i want you to share with us how you moved the needle for disabled athletes in canada uh i i um I'm always I and I, I it's not about being humble it's because a lot of people have I, but yes I think I did play my part uh, I don't know how deliberate it was I think sometimes I find myself uh, again C7 good example I find myself in the middle of a fight without really knowing it's going to be that big of a fight but but also without fear of that fight and that happened a lot when i was uh, a paralympic athlete because um i was not a pioneer i think i was in maybe the second wave where we had the paralympic games we had some sort of organization but i remember a few times um i had to fight uh, some sports federation i had to even refuse awards because i thought it was not fair and it was never easy i think uh, i have to say that when i had to fight uh, for recognition of the value of a Paralympic medal, of the value of Paralympic sport. Um, I, I never did it just because I liked to be um, in the center of a, uh, of a controversy. 
I did it because I thought this was the right thing to do. This was the right thing to do for me, for my sport, for the younger athletes coming up. But there was also some times where uh, things started to change. And I remember uh, at Commonwealth Games when uh, uh, in in uh, when in Australia, Commonwealth Games in Australia, when the team uh, they had some. Uh, Paralympic events included at the Commonwealth Games, like because Commonwealth Games has always been the best uh, inclusive movement. And they, they told me, you're going to be the flag bearer uh, for the opening ceremony. And I have to say, I did not expect that at all. And there were so many great athletes, uh, Olympic athletes, Paralympic athletes. And this was to be the very first time in an inclusive event that a Paralympic athlete would be chosen um, as a flag bearer. And to this day, I'm very proud that Canada was the first one to do that, you know, because it does mean something. Uh, it does show something. And it doesn't mean the fight is over, but it does show something. And I remember thinking, well, first, it, it, it was a great joy. It was a great honor, but it was also a great symbol because on that team, uh, I remember when they had the flag bearer announcement and they announced me and I thought some of these young athletes, you know, gymnasts, what do they know about Paralympic sport? Uh, and um, and in fact, right after the announcement, they gathered around me and they wanted a picture and then they posted it. And then I thought, you know, this is this is how change happens. Sometimes it happens with very difficult fight and, and, and confrontation. And sometimes it happens with positive change. Mm -hmm. It happens with an organization choosing me and then those gymnasts posting me to all the other gymnasts in Canada. And, and I think both are necessary. I think sometimes the fight uh, and, and the aggressive fight and the conflict mm -hmm. are helping move that needle, but it needs to be accompanied with with positive stories. Uh, and I think both play their part. And and I've had the privilege to to live both. I've had the privilege when I won the Lou Marsh, I remember my dad, you know, winning the Lou Marsh Award, which uh, for 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 those who, who are not in the sport world is is the biggest sport prize you can get in Canada and it is decided by journalists, sport journalists from every province. So it is the, the expert who say this year, men, women, professional, amateur, Paralympic, Olympic, you are the Lou Marsh Award recipient. It's huge. And then when I got it as the first Paralympian to, to get it, I remember my dad calling me and, uh, you know, saying, I can't believe you won that uh, because some hockey player wanted the year before and to him. But but this was huge, you know, and it was huge for Canada again to give that prize to a Paralympic athlete before other countries. Um, so I think those positive experiences do play a, a big role in, in moving that needle as well. Um, you know, we we are going through a pandemic now. Um, you know, I was actually fascinated when you said about the pressure of being at the starting line and the and the stress and all of that sort of stuff. And and one of the things that people do to manage their stress, 
manage their anxiety is to do physical activity, you know, either through sport or just physical activity, you know, outside their house. Um, and, and you've often talked about how, you know, we are getting to be a sedentary uh, people, especially young kids, you know, young people aren't, aren't necessarily taking up sports as they much or being as physically active. And then you add onto that this pandemic that has essentially told everyone to stay indoors and don't do anything. I mean, that's evolved a little bit now where you can, you know, go out and get physical activity. Um, but what do you think in general needs to be done to encourage young people to be physically active, to encourage them to use physical activity to deal with the everyday emotions that are difficult that everyone has to deal with, anxiety, stress, and, and all that sort of issues. I think, uh, I think physical activity has to be part of the recovery of this pandemic, not only for kids, but for everybody. And of course, people will say, yeah, of course you're saying that you're a former athlete, but, but it is, you know, it is evidence-based. It is more and more evidence-based. And I find it interesting that in Canada, somehow, you know, and that's good. Like we, we, we think we're better than we are in that part. But when we look at the numbers, we're not that good. You know, we're not doing so well in terms of being physically active, uh, adults and especially kids. And now we're looking at this pandemic and it's even... Uh, I mean, I'm going to say it's a tragedy because I think it is a tragedy. I've seen it how, uh, you know, for, for very valuable reason, we had to cut organized sports for the kids. Uh, we've had to cut uh, recess visits because we want to keep the safe bubbles and that's all good. But then again, I look at different countries who came up with different solutions like, well, let's build the classroom outside it's cold. Well, who cares if it's cold? You know, mm -hmm. like some countries have done that. They've been very audacious. Um, I think sometimes we lack being, um, you know, thinking outside the cliche box. Uh, and uh, and and I see it in different countries, and it really um, it really frustrates me because I'm like, why 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 can we not be audacious? Why can we not go further? Why can we not, um, you know, take risk or not, not, you know, safety risk, but, you know, try uh, different things. And uh, there's some very interesting movement in uh, some of the Nordic countries and in da Denmark in, in what they call like forest class where kids mm -hmm. just, and in some Asian countries as well. I'm like, well, this pandemic certainly would be the best time <laughs> to start that. And not only we're not doing it, we're not even thinking about it. Uh, we're not even planning for it. And to me, um, that that is very sad. Uh, I think what we're going to find um, via this, uh, through this pandemic and the recovery, because it's been now over a year, and we're not done yet, let's be honest, we're not done yet. And I find that everybody, if we're honest with ourselves, it's tough, it's tougher than we think. It has an impact on our well-being, on our stress level. Uh, and even if we're aware of that, even if we're you know, educated and, and we take measures, it does have an impact. I see it uh, and people tell me about it. And so, Physical activity will be, I think, uh, I, I think it will be one of the answer 
to get back into uh, being strong as individual and as country. And, and I hope that we don't miss this opportunity to say, well, let's not go back to exactly what we were, but why not do more? Why not, you know, make sure our kids are outside more often? Um, there are so many things that we can do that sometimes are not so expensive. You know, I've read uh, in Australia, for example, that the schools have teamed up with the parks, the municipal parks, to have those safe bubbles to, in mm -hmm. fact, let the schools use the municipality parks. And I'm like, well, why are we not doing, why, why are we not doing that anyway, pandemics or not? Like, why are, are our kids not taking, you know, Fizet in, in the municipal, uh, you know, uh, parks. And uh, so there are a lot of things that we can do, and I'm hoping that uh, we take this, this opportunity. What I find challenging is, as a senator, I would love to play a very active role on that, and I'm still struggling to figure, to you know, to figure out because, uh, a lot of it has to do with with provincial competency, as we know, uh, and we've seen it in this pandemic. You know, some some provinces, kids never really stopped doing organized sports. Some provinces, it's completely stopped, uh, and it's really hard to figure out um, why. For once, but it's very difficult for me as a senator to to really grab an actionable plan because it's you know it's one thing to be a spokesperson, but you want to be able to have some actionable impact on that. And, and I'm still frustrated because I'm not quite sure how I can make that happen. I mean, I'll have to say physical activity has helped me get through the pandemic just to be able to do sports either outside with my son or, uh, you know, any sort of sports. And I've taken up a few sports myself that I hadn't done before. But I wanted to to ask you about another difficult question because, uh, you know, Bill C-7 was a difficult issue. You know, you've talked about your experience with the Paralympics and having to deal with that and, and the Olympic movement. Uh, we're we're coming into another Olympic Games, and uh, you know it's uh, the Olympic Games are going to be, uh, you know, there's there's already calls for the 2022 Winter Olympics uh, that are going to be hosted in Beijing to be moved, um, you know, because of what's happening uh, with the Uyghurs in, in China, and um, so I wanted to, you know, we, we we wanted to get your sort of perspective on what you think should be done because. Let me just give a little bit of my sort of thought on this is that for the athletes, they've been working for years to have that moment. Um, but then there are other bigger, you know, political issues that are involved in that. And how do you sort of deal with those both of those issues? Um, I've been thinking about that a lot, uh, in fact, because I've as you know, uh, some athletes have taken position on it. Some, uh, there was a, a co-sign letter uh, saying, you know, not, you know, not cancel the games, but make them happen somewhere else. Uh, and it is so, so difficult. From a personal per perspective, I will never say cancel the games because, I mean, I was in Beijing in 2008, and although it was not to, 
definitely not to the level of human rights infringement that it is now. It, it still was not perfect, right? We can all agree on that. Uh, and even at that time, there was discussion on, you know, uh, you're going to go there. And and I remember when they built the Beijing Stadium and uh, and village, there was a lot of population displacement. Uh, and, 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 and I was there and I had the best, games and memory and performance of my life. I know also that these games had a huge impact on persons with disability in China. Uh, I know that firsthand because of the investment and because let's be honest in 2008 and even now being a person with a disability in China was not good news. And so these Paralympic games in specific have a bit a, a huge side effect and impact. So but I think what my position is on that is that it has to come from the International Olympic Committee and the National Olympic Committees who need to have some sort of criteria. For example, years ago, you could bid for an Olympic game without even man mentioning the Paralympic Games and people did not mention it, mm -hmm. to be honest. Uh, it was some sort of an afterthought. And then after a while, it was like, no, if you're going to bid as a city for the Olympic Games, make sure that you have a Paralympic bid plan that is strong. And, and now it's part of the understanding that if a city is bidding for Olympic, they take into consideration Paralympic. Maybe the next step would be that if you're bidding for the Olympic, you need to make sure that the country that is bidding uphold some some you know uh, values and standards and in, in terms of human rights because because that's what you're fighting for for the Olympics uh, and but I think this has to to come from the leadership of the Olympic Committee internationally but maybe the National Olympic Committee mm -hmm. Canada other countries have to say. Okay, we are member of of your organization. Make sure that you know when when we have cities and countries that bid, they answer. You know, you have a checklist, and and that's how I would go with it. But uh, there is a lot of politics and there is a lot of money involved, so I don't know how far my idea would go. But that's how I think it should go. You're absolutely right, Senator. You know, we we as members of of many international fora, we we need to wear our values. Uh, we can't impose them on other jurisdictions, but we can certainly move the needle in in the way that you're suggesting. So I I want to get back to leadership, um, and uh, you know, many leaders or or people with opinions. People with opinions are not necessarily leaders, I believe. Um, they may be experts, but they're not leaders. One of the key qualities of a leader is, is accepting that leadership is not just about being right, or in fact, not at all about being right. It's about uh, listening to others, about, uh, you know, trying to craft a consensus, as you're, you're trying to suggest here. How should we listen to others? Because I've noticed that you're very, very good at listening to others and you don't uh, do it um, just sort of a performer way. You're actually quite authentic about it. So what's the mm -hmm. secret sauce? <laughs> I don't think I have it yet, to be honest. 
<laughs> I want it, but I don't have the, the secret sauce. But you know, one one time I read first, I I I really don't see myself as a leader. Uh, I think I happen to be in position of leadership sometimes either. I don't think it's by accident, but it's by conviction. It's like, for example, C7, I believe in in access to medical assistance and dying. So when they ask me, I'm like, yes, yeah, sure. I, you know, I believe in it. I think it's the right thing. I think it's uh, so. So then I say yes, and then I become in a position of leadership, but it never comes by, I want to lead something and let's make it happen. And, and one time, so I'm very, uh, uneasy about that uh, kind of, uh, and I don't see myself as it be, uh, uh, as a, a leader sometimes because we all we still have this image of a leader being in a position of authority, and of course, uh, you know, maybe it comes from a, a bit of a masculine um, mm -hmm. cliche of leadership that is changing, but it's changing slowly. And one time, I I read a book from the University of Sherbrooke that was defining different types of leadership and one was of course the classic and one was more the collaborative and one was more the a bit of the hero leader that inspires other to follow and i thought that was interesting and it really kind of inspired me to say okay maybe i'm not you know i'm not the loud one i'm not the one that talks a lot in meetings i'm not the one that tries to push too much but but maybe I can lead or I can make things happen even if this is not who I am and who I want to be. And so so I think you're right that um, I do like to give space um, either when, you know, with this bill or even in committee as chair. And I do like to give space to individuals, to their ideas, their questions, their um, conviction, because I think it is important. And I think that it is more complicated to do it this way. Sometimes it does take more time, but in the end, I think the results um, are just better, more richer. Uh, and I, I, I do believe in that, but I've seen that the downside of this is that some people interpret that collaborative approach as lack of confidence because we're still used to leadership being a, a little louder, a little more mm -hmm. louder. And so when you come with a leadership position that is not like that, uh, I've seen it a few times that people will will misinterpret it as lack of confidence. And so so it happened a couple of times where I had to say, no, I know exactly what I want to do. And 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 so it's been a very interesting uh, learning process to find myself. And also because I come from a very individual uh, environment as an athlete. Um, and then, you know, as a coach or even as a chef de mission. And, and this is very different type of work in the Senate when, um, so I'm still learning how to, to keep that style that is important to me, but also making sure that people don't maybe, um, I don't know, you know, uh, I have a cat situation here. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, you uh, underplay your own 
uh, impact, uh, but I take the point that you make uh, that you have a certain that leaders should have modesty, but they should have conviction. Um, so our fi my final question is is perhaps a, a difficult one because anyone who is a leader knows and experiences that when you put yourself out in a leadership position, you are a target. Uh, for all kinds of uh, of uh, other people, and it, it leadership brings its own crown of thorns, so to say. Uh, and with the advent of social media, I think it's fair to acknowledge uh, that uh, you and I both have been victims of social media trolls. Um, how do you? I don't think you can do anything about it because social media is free space. But how do you mentally? deal with it uh, so that it 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 doesn't crush you for more than a moment. Yes, so I'm it, it, social media. Uh, I mean, negative social media experience has been uh, very difficult for me. Uh, I have to be honest with that. I think, you know, because as a former gold medalist uh, in general, everybody loves you. <laughs> So sometimes I think it's karma bringing back the balance because uh -huh. for the for the first 20 years of my life I had good job good job bravo bravo and then the first time I experimented with very strongly negative social media response was when I was sponsoring the the plain packaging tobacco bill uh, and vaping bill because of course there's some very strong opinion on that and C7 strangely was even uh, worse, uh, and, and, and I'm using worse uh, as that's exactly what I want to say, and it really took me by surprise, to be honest, that it was so aggressive, so personal, uh, and social media is one thing, but my office got, you know, overwhelmed by organizations being um, very, very aggressive, and so I guess there's two things with that, like personally, I need to really work on not letting it get to me because sometimes and one day I'm like, OK, I've got three people saying those very, very nasty personal things about me, but I've got, you know, 15,000 followers and the rest of them are quite OK, apparently. And, and but the problem is the three or the one bad comment can ruin your day, even if you've got five positive comments. Uh, but that's basic psychology. And, you know, even when you're raising a kid, they always say you, 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 you tell them three good things and one things that you, you want <laughs> to fix. Like you need to counterbalance because the negative one will always have more, you know, uh, more impact and, and last longer. So I keep to, I'm trying to get some sort of a distance with that. Um, but then I have to say that uh, one of the things that I've done also is to put a limit to what I can take. And, mm -hmm. and, and social media, some people say, oh, it's social media, you're a public, you know, you're a public representant. And, but yeah, I'm a public representant, but I'm a human being and I have my limit. If you want to debate, if you want to say I'm wrong, if you want to say you don't agree, I'm happy and, and, and I am happy to have that conversation. But if you cross that line where it's really unacceptable that I would never let someone tell that to, to my face, you know, 
because it's just not the way that that is acceptable in terms of being aggressive in terms of being you know i don't want to name examples but you know to cross mm -hmm. that line and then i'm like i'm blocking you okay <laughs> i'm doing it and 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 it's like uh, and i thought for i thought about it for a few days and i'm like no because this is just socially unacceptable and and i think we need to be vocal on this is fine this is normal you know tough uh discussion but this should not happen in a society even if it's uh, only on social media. So I take from that uh, a sense of balance, you know, look mm -hmm. at who say, you know, put it out, but, you know, in, in perspective. But I also take your point of view very well that that one negative comment can really ruin your day. And so you've left us with some real strategies uh, to how to think about leadership, how to position yourself as a leader, how to be effective, how to, you know, it's as you've said to me, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. I think we can conclude from this podcast that your leadership will continue on its marathon. And I want to thank you very, very much for it, uh, for joining us today and sharing your insights. To our listeners, be sure to check out our podcasts and subscribe to them. We welcome your suggestions on topics and speakers for future episodes, and we will continue to move the needle as we examine the challenges facing our society. Thank you.